Philippians chapter 3. I want to begin today with Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, 7 concluded our text last time. The Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Remember that these words gain and loss are accounting terms. Paul is referring to the ledger of his life, the state of his soul before God. He has a credit column and he has a debit column. And in verses 5 and 6, he lists all of his gain, everything that he has had in his credit column. He has the heritage, he has the zeal to put himself in superior categories of status and achievement. That status of achievement, of course, is according to the flesh. And Paul says, if, if one's confidence is in the flesh, then I have more reason for confidence before God than anybody else does. Because if we're talking about achievement according to the flesh then my gain, my credit column is full. But when Christ took hold of his life, Paul realized that all of that gain was an illusion. It was just an illusion. And instead, all of that gain, everything in his credit column, Paul realized is really a liability. It's really a deficit. And so he was spiritually and morally bankrupt. When Paul saw Christ, when Christ took hold of his life, he realized he was in the red. Everything was loss. And so whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, I moved it all to the debit column. It was all loss. It was all deficit. And Christ became my only gain. He became everything. The conclusion is that no matter what moral credits we add to our credit column, our ledgers, yours and mine, are all red. And the more of our own credentials we try to add to the credit column, the deeper that debit column goes, the greater is the debt that we incur. What is at stake is belonging to God, being part of his covenant people, being right before God, rejoicing for an eternity with God and his blessing or facing an eternity of hell and judgment. That's what's at stake in that ledger. Our only hope is Jesus Christ is our only confidence. Christ must be counted as the gain in the credit column and the only gain because Jesus does not share space with all of our own self-achievement. Now, having declared this, this revolutionary shift from confidence in his own flesh to confidence in Christ alone, Paul now expands on true gain and true loss, and reveals his supreme ambition. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If there is a secret sauce to the Christian life, this is it. For the child of God, there is no greater purpose, no greater aim in life than to know Christ. And in fact, all of our purpose statements, all of our vision statements could be boiled down to that, to know Christ, to know him. Christ is to be our supreme ambition. Paul says, not not only have I counted whatever gain I had as loss, but I count everything as loss. So, Paul says, not only have I taken every, all of my moral credits, all of my achievement, and I've realized them for the bankrupt things they are, and I've moved them all to the debit column, all as loss, but I count everything as loss. Everything goes there. All goals, all aspirations, all possessions, anything that would compete with allegiance to Christ. Why? What can consume a person such that all else is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? This knowing is personal knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. This is a familiarity with a person that we gain by spending time in their company, having long conversations, and observing them closely. This is the knowing of relationship. Paul is not talking about a list of truths about Christ. He's not talking about gaining a lot of theology and doctrine. Paul is saying, I want to walk with him. I want to commune with him. Now, I'm not saying that you can commune with Christ without knowledge of him. You can't. You can't walk with Jesus and not have doctrine or theology. That's not possible. You have to know truths about Jesus if you want to know him relationally. And it is wrong to pit knowledge against relationship. And there are some who say that. There are some who act like the less you know about truth, the better you can walk with Jesus. The less theology you have, the better you can commune with him. That simply is impossible. Ignorance is no basis for friendship. If you knew somebody, you were friends with somebody, and you found out that they had a completely hidden life, things you didn't know about them, that they were leading an alternate life, that you knew nothing about, would you say you knew them? No. Even after years, some spouses, 
Husbands and wives will say, I never, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I never knew him. I never knew her. This knowledge and this relationship is knowing truth and it is walking accordingly. The problem, of course, is having knowledge with no relationship. And that's really what I think people are getting at. Is that there are some, and it is possible, and there are some in this room even, who know lots of doctrine, who know lots of theology, but may not have ever known Jesus personally. There are people who grow up in the church who sit Sunday after Sunday and hear sermon after sermon. Some even go on to Bible colleges and they don't ever really know Christ. They've never walked with him. They've never communed with him. That makes for an empty knowledge. But when Paul says, I want to know him, Paul is saying, I want to walk with him. I want to commune with him. To know Jesus in this personal way by experience is to Paul of surpassing worth. Which means that knowing Christ exceeds all other priorities, all other ambitions. All things pale. All things become expendable to know Jesus. This is why real Christian living cannot be drudgery. It can be hard, it can be painful, but it cannot be drudgery. The Christian life is not about gritting your teeth and keeping the rules. When a person comes to Christ and submits to him and finds forgiveness of sins, that person's desires are transformed. What they want is changed I believe it to be the truest test of a person's conversion. The most telling evidence of a person's real spiritual condition is appetite. What does he desire? What does she delight in? When I was 14 uh, 14 years old, the Lord took hold of my life in a very deliberate, powerful way. The experience took place on a youth group mission trip where we, we conducted backyard Bible clubs and shared the gospel and we did some street evangelism. And I saw people come to Christ. I had the blessing of leading children to Christ. Now at age 14, I don't know how sincere their commitment was. I don't know all of what their understanding level was. But I do know that God broke my heart. I was convicted of sin And Jesus filled the horizon of my life. It was for me a Damascus road. And when I returned home, I was a different person. I was immersed in the life of my church. I had a voracious hunger for scripture. It took me two weeks before I realized the change. It took two weeks before I realized that I had no appetite for the movies I had watched before I had gone on the trip. That I had no appetite to listen to the music that I had listened to before I had gone on the trip. 
I had no tolerance for the disrespect of my parents or teachers like I had had. No one had to prod me to go to church. No one had to tell me to read my Bible. I didn't even need a reading schedule. And if the doors were open at church, I was going to be there. Because nothing brought me more joy and happiness than being with other believers, being immersed in truth. My dad came home one day. So changed, my life was changed. My dad said, you know, I, I noticed you're reading your Bible a lot and that you're really hungry. He said, why don't you listen to these tapes? And he handed me a cassette tape series by John MacArthur on the spiritual armor of the believer. And so here I was up in my room every night that I didn't have homework with the little Panasonic, you know, the little, okay. I had one, this was a long time ago. It was the late 80s, mid, mid 80s. And I, you know, I'm listening to John MacArthur and I'm taking notes. That's how I spent my evenings. That's just what God did in my heart and in my life at that time. But no one had to tell me to do that. I wasn't trying to impress anybody. I wasn't trying to keep a checklist, conform to one. I was driven by a delight in Christ. Alistair Begg calls this the expulsive power of a new affection. I love that phrase. I don't know if he coined it originally or if he took it from someone else. The expulsive power of a new affection. That is a new affection that drives out all others. It's what Paul means by surpassing worth. Knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. And when knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth, then it's really no sacrifice, is it? To lose everything else. It reminds me of Peter in John chapter 6. When Jesus has some really hard things to say, and a lot of his disciples who have been following him, not the 12, but the larger group, bodies of people who are following Jesus and calling themselves his disciples, walked away. What he had to say was too hard, and they couldn't handle it, and they walked away. And Jesus turns to the 12, and he says, what about you? And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to follow? We have come to believe and to know that you are sent from God. Peter wasn't saying, yeah, you're right, Jesus, we'd like to leave too, but you know, we signed a contract. We got three years to go here with you. Peter said, where else would we go? We know who you are. We know you've come from God. And you and you only have the words of eternal life. It's really not a, no sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice to give up making mud pies in an alley to gain a vacation in the Caribbean to use C.S. Lewis's illustration? Paul continues, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish and lose them he did. He lost 
his prestige. He lost a promising career. He lost a rich religious heritage. He lost scholarly influence. He lost any wealth, personal wealth that he would have had. Paul never mentions having had a lot of wealth in any of his letters. But yet, having the prestige that he had, coming from the background that he had, Paul probably had a significant amount of money. What about a home? Paul never says anything about having had a home or having lost a home in particular, but we know from the point that Jesus called him, he wandered. He never stayed put anywhere. Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. But you see, to know Christ means emptying ourselves just as Christ emptied himself. That's what Paul is living out. Christ, though being in the form of God, being glorious, emptied himself. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm living that out. I am mirroring that in my life. And yet he qualifies this suffering of loss, doesn't he? It is loss. It is suffering. But he says, I count them as rubbish, scubala. It means refuse or dung or manure. I heard another preacher once note that our English Bibles clean this word up a bit and that the word is really excrement, to which I thought in my own mind, well, that's kind of cleaning the word up a bit. Because the word that Paul uses, the best equivalent in our English language is the word crap. And it's hard for me to say that because in the Harrelson household, that's not a word that we are allowed to use. It's crap. That's what Paul says. I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as crap. Excrement doesn't carry that. It's not a profanity, but it's crass. And Paul uses the crassness of the word to show the revulsion he has for anything that might compete with Christ. Anything he might rely on. Anything he might be tempted to sneak back into the gain column. It's the distance between the worth of Christ and the worth of anything else. Knowing Christ is of such surpassing worth that everything else is scubala crap. Listen, Paul is not renouncing wickedness in his life. Paul is renouncing the goodness in his life. Paul's looking at all the good moral things. It wasn't, it wasn't wrong or bad in of itself to have scholarly influence, to have any personal wealth, to have the prestige, to have a promising career. None of those things in and of themselves were wicked or bad. His following of the law was not wicked or bad. Paul's looking at all the good things and he's calling them crap. He's saying it's all worthless. It's all scuba lights. Everything compared to knowing Christ. So he may have lost all things, but Paul is not looking for our sympathy or our pity. 
No, everything he's lost for Jesus' sake is rubbish anyway. It's just garbage. Knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. Now, verses 8 and 11, uh, through 11 break down what it means to know Christ in terms of three aims or three goals that Paul says he has. Each one begins with the word that. In verse 8, it's in order that. In verse 10, you will see, it begins with that. And in verse 11, same word that, so that, in order that. And Paul basically is saying this, to know Christ is to, it's these things. This is what it means. First of all, to know Christ is to gain Christ's righteousness. To know Christ is to gain Christ's righteousness. You can't gain Christ without losing everything else. On the one side is everything self-achievement and the world have to offer. And on the other side is Christ. Paul will make that trade. It's a trade Paul will make with joy. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, which are really essentially two different ways of viewing the same reality. To gain Christ means to be found in him. And to be found in Christ, to be united with Christ, means to have Christ as your gain. And again, we see a pattern. A pattern that Jesus set. When as the second person of the Trinity, he became man and suffered and was obedient to death, even to death on a cross. As Christ emptied himself to be found in human form. Chapter 2, verse 8. It's the same word, found. Christ did this to be found in human form. So we must empty ourselves, lose all things to be found in him. Found by whom? By God. When the second person of the Trinity became man, when he was found in human form, he was found by God. God was the one who willed it, and God was the one who honored it. When he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, God exalted him. Who will find us in Christ or not in Christ? God will. The goal of gaining Christ and being found in him is righteousness. Righteousness. Righteousness is the word that is often translated justification. So to justify is to make righteous. And it refers to a person's standing before God. It refers to your legal standing in God's courtroom before God the judge as either guilty or right. God's holiness, his morally perfect character, demands a verdict. It is justification that the book of Romans especially labors to unfold for us, and it is the doctrine of justification that lay at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. 
Understanding that our only righteousness is in Christ and only in Christ. Paul makes three points here about this righteousness, and you can see them. First is a righteousness not my own that comes from the law. This is a righteousness that comes from obeying the law of God. Paul already had this. He already had this righteousness. As to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless, Paul has said. I was blameless. This righteousness is now where? In his debit column. This was liability. And it's not that there was a problem with the law. The law was not bad, but the law was meant to be a preparation for righteousness. It was never meant to be the basis for righteousness. The law was meant to prepare us for the righteousness that was to come in Jesus because he would fulfill the law. The law was necessary so that Jesus' righteousness could fulfill it for our sake. It was never meant to be the basis for righteousness. That's what it had become. That's how Paul had lived. If you jump through all the right hoops, if you check off all the right boxes, righteous. Jesus is the only basis for righteousness because he fulfilled the law. Tragically, though, this is the kind of righteousness so many of us cling to. Not that most of us are trying to live by the Mosaic law, the code of the Old Testament, the first covenant, but we do live by self-achievement. Even those of us who know Christ, we fall into this trap. We've come to Christ. We know salvation is by grace. We know we stand right before him, but we walk day in and day out like life is about checking off boxes. And so many then are deceived into thinking that because they have kept some moral code, It may be their own moral code. It may be some moral code that they recognize outside of themselves. But by keeping it, they have attained righteousness. Because, it is tragic because this righteousness is of the flesh and it can never save. It can never deliver. It can never make a person right or justified before God. We need something better. We must have a righteousness other than our own. And Paul says, it's righteousness I want. It's righteousness I need, but not my own righteousness that comes from the law. Secondly, it is righteousness that instead comes through faith in Christ. When we trust in Christ, when we put our confidence in only him, his righteousness comes to us. That is, his righteousness is given to us. Such that we now have his righteousness. We stand before God just. We stand before God righteous. Because 
when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He sees Jesus' keeping of the law. Being saved by grace does not mean that you can stand before God as something other than righteous. You don't get saved by grace and then get to enter God's presence as unrighteous. You get saved by grace, which means you get Jesus' righteousness, which means you get to go before God and stand before him as righteous. This is at the heart of the gospel. It is at the heart of the reformed faith. This righteousness is through faith in Christ. This is why Christ is the object of the faith. Faith in Christ is contrasted with the law. The law left someone to trust in himself or herself because keeping the law was a matter of achievement. And the reality, of course, was that it could never really be kept. Because anyone who tried to keep it had to keep it perfectly. No mistakes, no deviation, no sin at all. Faith in Christ means trusting Christ. Means glorying in Christ, boasting in Christ, gaining Christ. You can see how Paul rephrases this reality over and over again. It is the only way of having righteousness before God. Third, it is righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is righteousness from God that depends on faith. Ultimately, this righteousness is from God. It comes through faith in Christ, but it is God himself who bestows it on us. Trusting in Christ is the only way of receiving this righteousness from God. That's the trade. According to Paul, all things for Christ's righteousness. He says to know Christ means to gain Christ's righteousness. Secondly, to know Christ is to know Christ's power. It is to know Christ's power. Now, Christ's power is the power of his resurrection, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the power of his resurrection is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We need that kind of power because it takes that kind of power to save us. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were destined for wrath, for judgment, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. That kind of saving requires the power of raising Christ from the dead. It is the power that has been exerted in your life and mine to save us, to transform us, to make us alive together with Christ, to raise us up with him. And Paul declares, I have lost all things that I may know that power, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may experience his resurrection power as the defining reality of my life. So that I may share, then he goes on. And it looks like two different things, doesn't it? That I may know the power of his resurrection and may share. But these things are the same thought. He links them together. Uh, That I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's the link. Share should be a familiar word if you've been here for this series in Philippians. It is the same word as fellowship or partner. We saw this back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, I thank God all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we talked about how that word partnership or fellowship did not just mean a passing, a passing relationship, that it meant a joining of lives together for a common goal. And that in partnering or having fellowship with Paul and his ministry in the gospel, the Philippians were sharing in that ministry. They were partners because they had the same goal and invested their lives in the same way as Paul was. This is that same word. Paul saying, I want to share... I want to partner in Jesus' sufferings. I want to share in them, becoming like him in his death. Once again, Paul sees Christ emptied himself, being found in the form of humanity, and that he became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul is just saying, I want to walk the same path. I want to partner with him. I want to share in that with him. Paul is making this connection. Sharing in Christ's sufferings, even paying the ultimate price, this is walking the path of the cross. This puts him in touch with the power of Christ's resurrection because it is that power which enables him to endure suffering, to share in it, to partner with Christ in his suffering. It is the power of Jesus' resurrection that sustains him as he becomes like Christ in his death. Paul has been called to share in Christ's sufferings and the suffering and the power cannot be separated. It's circular. 
It is this resurrection power that enables us to endure sufferings and share in Jesus' sufferings. And it is sharing in his sufferings that opens the door to know his resurrection power. Do you see? That's what Paul is saying. And Paul says you can't know Christ. You can't walk with Jesus. You can't commune with him unless you partner in his sufferings and become like him in his death. What was it? Complete expendability. All the way to the cross. Paul is saying, I'm ready to go all the way. If that means I can know him. If that means I can commune with him. Those are not sacrifices. I want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to know the power of his resurrection by sharing in his sufferings and being sustained in that suffering by the power of his resurrection. And from Paul's perspective, all Christians are called to share in Christ's sufferings. He has already said to the Philippians back in chapter 1, verse 29, for it has been granted to you, given, it's a gift, it has been granted to you that you suffer for the sake of Christ. That you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And back in chapter 1, verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers. This is the same word, sharers. You are all sharers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Grace? Yes. The suffering, the being in prison for the sake of the gospel was grace. Why? Because it is that that enables us to know Jesus' resurrection power. Paul says all Christians are called to share to some degree in that suffering, and to know his resurrection power. So this suffering and this power of Christ's resurrection, the suffering which ultimately means death, means knowing Christ. Because Christ became obedient to death. And if you're going to know him, you have to walk with him in the same emptying, self-emptying, suffering unto death way. And yet, death will not have the last word. Because to know Christ is to attain Christ's glory. To know Christ is to attain Christ's glory. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Just as we will share in Christ's power and suffering and ultimately death, so Paul longs to share in Christ's victory over sin and death. That is his glory. So you see, Paul mentions resurrection here, so close to each other, but really two different aspects. In the one case, it is to know now in life the power of Christ's resurrection. But Paul now is looking to a future event. He's looking to something that has not happened yet, but something that is promised. 
And that is ultimate deliverance. That is resurrection from among the dead. And what Paul has in view then is the promise that Jesus will one day return and he will call up his people out of the grave from among the dead. Now, there will be a resurrection of all the dead and every person will stand before God. But first, there will be a resurrection of believers. And Paul is, that's what he indicates when he says, when I am resurrection from among the dead, I will be called up out from among the corpses, literally, the dead ones. And I will know Christ then fully. That's where the fullness of knowing Christ takes place for us, is when he calls us up out of the grave. The power that raised Christ is the power that is exerted in our lives is the power that will raise us from the dead, and it is then that we will know fully. And Paul says to know Christ is to attain his glory. But Paul, like us, doesn't know when this will happen. He doesn't know the circumstances in which it will take place. Will he die first? Will Christ return before he dies? And he will just be called up to him. And skip the dying part altogether. He doesn't know. This is what he means by the words, by any means possible. Paul is saying, by whatever path I have to take. If that means dying, I'll die. If that means I just, I I rot until Jesus returns, that's fine. If I'm in prison until he comes back, that's okay. By whatever means necessary, whatever path I have to take, I want to know Christ that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul always has the end in view. Eternity is always in his focus. To know Jesus now, to lose everything for his sake in this life, means knowing him fully on that day. When he calls us. You might say that Paul covers the great scope of salvation in these verses. He looks at that which is already completed in our salvation. Justification. If you have gained Christ. And he is all that is in your credit column. He is all your gain. Then you have his righteousness. You were justified. And in this present life then, if that has been done, we are in the process of being conformed to Christ's image. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. And we have the promise of the future. Glorification. That we will attain Christ's glory. Because he will change us. We will see him as he is. Every person will stand before God. Every ledger will be opened. And unless you and I are found righteous in his sight, we will face eternal judgment. In 2 Corinthians 
5.21, Paul says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin. That him is Christ. That he is God. God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have to be righteous. That's not an option. We either show up with our ledger and present our own credit column, to which God will say it's all red. Or we show up and God opens our ledger and in that credit column, he sees only Jesus. And the debit column, paid in full. That's the only way to know forgiveness. It is the only way to know an eternity of blessing. And everyone comes to this crossroads. Everyone. Where We must either choose our own morality, our confidence in ourselves, or realize how bankrupt we are spiritually and beg for Christ's mercy and trust him for it and be converted. Who is Jesus to you? Is Christ of surpassing worth in your life? There is no joy in a Christianity where Jesus is not of surpassing worth. And where there is no joy, there is no Christianity. Do you long to know him? Do you long to commune with him? Is all of life expendable? For that supreme ambition. It's what you were created for. It's what God made each of you for. This is life's purpose. This is the answer to life. You got it right here. It is to know Christ. It's why you were designed. And it's why when you don't know him, everything else is empty. There may be some satisfaction. There will be enjoyment in life, but it will be fleeting. And there will be, in the end, no meaning. And our world is adrift without meaning, isn't it? The people that we know, they don't have meaning in life. Not ultimately. They may say that they don't want God. They may not believe in the Jesus stuff. That may be okay for you. It may not be okay for them. But inside, you can know with confidence that they were created to know Christ and that they know that vacuum is there, that they are empty and that life is meaningless without him.